Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons and I'm joined by my colleagues Claire Fox and Alastair Donald to chew over the news of the last two weeks. Uh, And it has been a busy couple of weeks since we last got together with President Trump. President Trump still sounds odd, I have to say, uh, firing off 21 executive orders, most notably on a temporary ban on immigration for people from seven mostly Muslim countries, reintroducing an abortion gag on federally funded development groups, providing funds for a wall on the Mexican border and placing some restrictions on so-called Obamacare, plus many, many more uh, initiatives. Uh, Since then, Trump's immigration ban has been ruled unconstitutional by the courts and is heading swiftly to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, back in the UK, the offer of a state visit for Trump has caused uproar, with the Speaker of the Commons, John Burko, causing controversy by declaring he wouldn't invite Trump to address Parliament. But it's not all been about Trump. Uh, After the UK Supreme Court ruled that the process of leaving the EU required parliamentary approval, a simple bill enabling this passed by an overwhelming majority in the House of Commons, and we'll see what happens with it in the House of Lords. The home of the American campus free speech movement, Berkeley, saw protests and riots triggered by the prospect of a talk by Milo Yiannopoulos. And in the UK, the government launched its housing strategy and an industrial strategy, both of which were rather underwhelming compared to the hype beforehand. So plenty to get our teeth into there. Um, Let's start with housing for a change. So it's well known that we have somewhat of a housing crisis in the UK with extortionate prices and problems of supply. So what has the government done about it and does it uh, meet the uh, challenge of the housing problems? Uh, Alistair? Yeah, I think you're, you're right to say it's been quite hyped, uh, the coming of the white paper. I mean, for me, it was uh, uh, the, the, the tenor of the thing was captured by the way that Newsnight um, decided to do an almost hour-long programme uh, the night of the white paper, called it the Home Front, which suggested uh, you know, it was quite a big thing, it's almost like a, a wartime-like uh, scale of mobilisation in response to this crisis. And yet uh, the reality was that the white paper was called Fixing, Broking, Fixing the Broken Housing Market, which... Um, has a somewhat lesser uh, sort of sense of it's 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 going to be able to tackle any problems, and I think that was fairly evident from from the content of the paper. Really, it was a bit kind of patch and repair. Uh, we might be able to fix uh, a few things, but no real big new thinking, no real sense that the the, the government has a strategy to overcome uh, any of this. And there is, I think, just now, and has been for for some years now, a sense that that there's an almost permanent crisis around housing. I mean, we're, what, half a century on from the high point of house building in the the late 60s, where we're building 400,000 homes a year. I mean, it's almost 15 years since uh, Kate Barker from the Bank of England did her her, uh, quite important report in the early 2000s, which was on housing undersupply. And ever since then, it's it's kind of been downhill in terms of uh, the solutions proposed with, you know, fairly average, small-scale solutions fiddling about at the margins rather than anything comprehensive. Yeah, I think what really struck me was that how shallow the white paper was. And it sort of uh, presents housing as though it's an intractable problem that you can't solve when actually this is one of the simplest things that they should be able to actually kickstart the new post-Brexit British economy. I mean, you mentioned the industrial uh, uh, white paper. You do think of industrial strategy. This could be actually part of the industrial strategy, whereas it's sort of seen as though somehow we can't sort out how we should build this many houses. It's like, build them. 
So there's a number of things that struck me. Um, uh, people have talked about the fact that they haven't still made it clear that we could or should uh, review the green belt and build on it. I think that's true. I don't, I, and I think they should do that. And that's just an absolute obvious thing uh, that should happen. But I don't think that that is quite an explanation for why at the moment they're not building because they've actually lifted quite a lot of planning permission. You know, there's more planning permissions being given out. There's more land available. The argument put by lots of people on uh, the left, and I've got, I, I can understand why they'd say it, is, is that there's a kind of land banking going on by big house builders who are on a conscious go slow to keep house prices high. Now that all sounds very conspiratorial and you think can't possibly just kind of anti-corporate bias. But there's a, there's a degree to which I would say they're certainly not building very fast. It's not just planning permission as usual. So the state, as in the government, should free up the resources by letting councils, for example, build housing and they just aren't doing that so there's two there's a sort of ideological commitment to it being built privately but actually when that's not happening then not intervening and making sure it happens i'm not arguing for kind of uh, vast kind of council estates or you know social housing in some kind of social mobility way i simply think you should allow anyone who wants to to build wherever and whenever they can and that it seems to me is what's being held up and I, I genuinely don't quite understand why. Some of the commentators have rightly made the point, this is also, this is as much a conservative or middle class or middle England issue now as anyone else because the only thing that's actually facilitating the buying of houses amongst younger people, um, or, or the, as people call it, the bank of mum and dad. Um, so it's actually, people actually do want to be freed of that burden and, and, and that sort of kind of movement to occur. I, I also think, though, that it's the rented sector that's really problematic and it is the cost in the rented sector. So I, I wouldn't want to fetishise home ownership, neither in a Thatcherite way or in that kind of generation rent way where people seem to think it's a God-given right that you should be able to own a property by the age of 25, which seems to me to be daft. But on the other hand, the rented market is extremely uh, expensive and there are signs that that is leading to increased homelessness because people have been kicked out because they can't afford the rent. It also means that the welfare payments on housing benefit mm. are enormous. So at no point does this make any sense to me. Mm. But I do think it shows a certain paralysis of government and a complete lack of political imagination that they haven't just done something far more ambitious and really said, we're going to make this a post-Brexit project. Make housing one of the things which will really make this country feel different and indicate that we are taking control, you know, taking control of our future. This is the one thing that the government could do. Yeah, I think it, I think it's interesting on the Green Belt, actually, because in, in some ways, attitudes towards the Green Belt in recent years have become a bit more liberal. And in, in fact, if, if ever there was a moment when they did want to take the initiative and say, right, we are going to build in the Green Belt, then this is probably uh, a time that they could do that. Because uh, as, uh, you know, younger people become bigger voices in, in, in the discussion, I mean, their attitudes are not um, so anti-building on the Green Belt as... as, as uh, people have tended to be in, in, in yesteryear. So I think they could do that, but the fact that they haven't just shows a complete lack of confidence uh, in, in being able to uh, imagine a solution. And instead, what we've had is, 
is in some ways a return to the kind of central enforcement measures um, that actually the Conservative government came to power in 2010 railing against, so the regional planning initiatives which imposed housing targets without any sort of agreement at local level. They uh, stripped away and now they want to reimpose these kind of central controls on land banking and uh, you know the, some of the newer initiatives like, um, as the Newsnight programme mentioned, the, the types of things that go on in places like St Ives where there's started to be rules on, as to who can buy a house and who can build it. Uh, so, so, so there's just a, I, I agree, a, a complete lack of imagination. But it seems to me that um, what we're seeing now is is the playing out of something that's, you know, been been a trend for, for quite a number of years, which is that um, the the realm of house building and housing provision has been removed really as a political issue and has become a completely technical issue. And the problem now is that that. Um, that you know, at the level both of planning and and of the way that people acquire housing, um, there needs to be a political momentum behind uh, resolving that problem. So in the in the world of planning, um, it's 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 been clear for two decades now that uh, the mentality of there's there's not enough land or there's not enough resources there's not enough this there's not enough that to be able to uh, build housing has become a self-fulfilling prophecy and um, there needs to be a political argument developed against the type of constraints that govern the way that the planning system works similarly um, in terms of the way that housing uh, is part of the economy I mean it's very clear that with a, a sluggish economy over the past couple of decades that uh, housing has been an investment outlet, outlet as a substitute for uh, a more productive investment in the economy, but also at the level of an individual house owner, uh, the acquiring of credit through housing has also been something that uh, people have used to compensate for lack of increases in, in wages and so on and so forth. And so that protectionist uh, idea that we've got just now that we need to maintain house prices because uh, our livelihoods will go down the pan unless we uh, do that, um, I, I, th I think needs to be confronted. There needs to be a genuine political solution uh, to how house building and housing provision is, is, is going to operate in the future. And this fixing broken housing uh, is a, yet another re-emphasis of the technical manner of the housing debate. Um, yeah, I mean, I th I th I'm constantly astonished, even if you, if you don't take it from the point of view of the per people who are desperately trying to get onto the housing ladder. From the point of view of business itself, the fact that in order to get staff, they must pay sufficient wages for people to be able to move, say, to London, um, must be an enormous overhead for them. And anything that could, they could do to cheapen the cost, effectively the cost of labour... By, by cheapening housing would, would get, get broader industry support. But there, there seems to be, there doesn't seem to be like the CBI isn't you know, banging on the door of 10 Downing Street saying we must build more houses, we can't afford to do this anymore. Um, and as you said, I think that the, the, the politi political angle is, seems um, an obvious one. Um, and echoing Claire's point, I mean, anybody who stood up on a, on a platform of a house for everyone and had a serious plan about how that might be achieved would surely do extremely well. Um, in, in the polls, but there seems to be, as you say, Alistair, a, a real sense of constraint about what's possible. You know, we, we mustn't uh, interfere with the green belt. We, we must limit ourselves. We must constantly try to use up any last scrap of brownfield development land. We, you know, we, we have to build on people's gardens. People have to just have to get used to living in you know, divided up houses um, in, in flats rather than having a, a proper house of their own. And 
a constant sort of make do and mend attitude to the thing without any great ambition. Very very quickly, just of course it's also fueled that sense of, you know, Britain's too full. And we actually organised a battle of ideas satellite debate on this, which is it's not that um, we shouldn't be having a discussion about, you know, controlling borders and immigration politically more broadly anyway. But that sense in which people feel like there's not enough to go around and then there's all these people coming in that's kind of, you know, dominated some of the debates more recently, it's also uh, not helped. There's also an intergenerational tension where you've got basically got this... It's really fueled this idea of the kind of woe is me young and, and kind of baby boomers living on, on, on their kind of home ownership. But I, I'd like to echo what Alistair said as well, which is, is that as Thatcher brought in that, you know, buy your own home, which uh, I, 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 you know, couldn't stand and agree with Thatcher on many things, but the home ownership was one thing that was rather inspired on their part. But now what's happened is that's the only thing that people have got very often, that they own a home. That's kind of their investment in their wealth. And I think, you know, there's a kind of panic that if house prices went down, that people would feel that they were worse off um, because it feels like the only thing that you have of any value. And that's much more of a reflective uh, reflection of the fact that we're in stasis in an economic sense, that the house is the only thing. For some people, it's, it's like instead of having a pension, it's the only sense that you've, you've been able to acquire anything. And I think that that is something which, if we shook it all up, and that's maybe why they're nervous to do it, it would reveal something about the underlying problems of the uh, economy not getting very far. But as I say, I also think that it could be used to kickstart the economy. Yeah, I mean, it's that sense of shaking it all up, I think, that really uh, is at the heart of the problem, because that requires taking a risk and, and genuinely experimenting with large new initiatives, rather than scrabbling around, you know, it, as, as the talk is just now of a new doomsday book, of going around recording little scraps of land throughout the, uh, throughout the country in order that you can put a single unit here and a single unit there. I mean, it's just fundamentally not a solution. From Houses for the Common People to the House of Commons... Nice segue there, I think you'll agree. Uh, and uh, the controversy over John Burko, because he does seem to have... I mean, he annoys an awful lot of people with his rather sort of uh, attention-seeking and egomaniacal behaviour. But he seems to have topped himself uh, this week with his uh, comments about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, what, what do people think about this? Well, I think that the revelation subsequently that actually... Donald Trump was never invited to address uh, Parliament and that therefore uh, the whole thing has uh, been a complete virtue signalling. <laughs> you know, I am withdrawing your invitation even though you weren't invited. Uh, was an indication of the um, how shallow politics has become. But anyway, the kind of spirit of it is utterly illiberal, it seems to me. It's... Uh, sums up a certain contempt with which people have decided that they're going to discuss Donald Trump's presidency. Now, I'm about to discuss some things of Donald Trump's presidency and criticise him. That's all well and good. But I do recognise that he is the President of the United States. And the rank hypocrisy, which everyone has noted, so I'm not saying anything very original here, of saying Trump in particular is a pariah and a monster and a racist and a sexist and all these things that Burko reeled off in comparison with the myriad heads of state that have been welcomed by this country in a whole range of ways who you know and obviously people have talked about the the Chinese president so on and so forth 
would indicate a contempt for American democracy that underlies this, which I think we should be very wary of. I also thought that the fact that Burkhardt got so many cheers, you know what I mean? He just thought, oh, everybody just wants to uh, console themselves that they are on the right side when it comes to Donald Trump, without in any way, as always, understanding why he was voted in, the millions of people who voted for him. Because I don't care whether you like Donald Trump or not. I mean, I don't care whether Burko likes him or not. I don't care whether Burko thinks he's a misogynist or not. Who cares? You know, tens of millions of people voted for Donald Trump. It's an insult to them. So when you say we're not having him in here because we're the uh, the mother of democracy, and we're, it's, uh, it shows so much a disregard for the wishes of the American people that it's an actually anti-democratic... Uh, far more anti-democratic in some ways um, than, than Trump himself. The, the only other thing is the fact that he did it and kind of issued it by dicta. Constitutionally, he's allowed to do that. But as it, it seems to me, he acted just like Trump with his executive orders, which is, this is in my power, I'm going to do it, I'm not going to ask anybody, I don't care what anyone thinks, I don't care what the British people think, you know, this is my privilege. So ironically, it kind of established him as very much part of a clique and an elite uh, with a disdain for the British democratic process as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that was the thing that really uh, caught my eye, was how it, it, it does signify a contempt for British democracy. I mean, the context to this, obviously, is that, that um, this discussion has come on the end of months of court cases over uh, how Parliament has the right to uh, decide what, what happens in terms of Brexit. Uh, people going through the courts and saying, well, the, the MPs need to have a say in, in terms of the decision-making processes within the country. And it's been, it's been particularly striking, I think, in the spate of resignations over the past, uh, past few weeks, especially in the Labour front benches, the way that they've all come out and, and basically said... You know, we're we, we're not people who are just there to represent Parliament in Wolverhampton or wherever it is. We're representing the people of Wolverhampton in Parliament, and that that sort of sentiment of of Parliament is is kind of the heartbeat of democracy, and and where discussion can can take place and democratic debate is is at the centre of what goes on there. I think is 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 completely undermined by uh, one person taking a decision that uh, someone cannot speak there and. You know, there's, it, it's been interesting to see the petitions for and against Trump over the last few weeks and the way that uh, if you map who is signing the various different petitions, then the split in the country very much mimics uh, the way that the vote in Brexit went. So, so there's, uh, you know, uh, everybody who's been, or lots of people who've been signing the petition against Trump coming has been very much the Metropolitan London and a few other centres, whereas the rest of the country has been signing this other petition to hear him. So uh, why not have him into Parliament and have the confidence, if you don't agree with him, to question him and, and, and to expose his arguments? I mean, surely that's what a democratic forum is, is for. Yes, that's very much the problem with the uh, Trump is is there doesn't seem to be very much political engagement with what he's doing. There seem it does seem to be that pe- people want to turn him into a, a monster, completely exaggerating uh, the, the problems with him. And there are plenty of problems with him. It's, you know, I mean, the, the Hitler comparisons are still going around and still being uh, utterly ridiculous. And and that actually some some proper political engagement beyond just. You know, fact checking would be uh, a, a wonderful thing. Briefly, what do people think about the uh, this court case in America about the executive order? 
I'm a bit. I, I, I don't. I, I'm not seeing anything that really clearly explained to me why the courts felt that they could uh, block this order. It does seem to me a very dubious state of affairs that an elected politician can be second guessed by the courts, even though I think that the ban is stupid and illiberal. Yeah, it's 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 tricky one this because the executive orders that Trump has been issuing hardly any of which I agree with, but um, I don't suppose he's uh, interested in my views on this. Um, But just to make the case that a lot of them are draconian and illiberal and so on, and I would disagree with them. Nonetheless, the the notion of the executive order was popularised by, first of all, Bush, and then used uh, widely by Obama, which was a way of avoiding accountability. And so, basically, he's got it in his power, set by precedent of previous presidents, and they in and of themselves are an affront to democracy in many ways, the executive orders. But nobody complained when it was to bring in Obamacare or something. You know, so, that, so that's the first thing to say. The, the second thing then is, is that the uh, courts were not often mobilised to stop previous executive orders, but they have in this instance in relation to the so-called Muslim ban. And I, I, it's almost as though I, I don't want this Muslim ban to stand. So it's easy, it's a bit like being glad when the House of Lords overturns something you don't like from Parliament. You sort of think, oh good, the judges have intervened. And then you think, oh, that's not very good, is it? Because, you know, the judiciary might play a very different role in America. But it does seem a peculiar state of affairs when the judiciary can stop an elected president in that way. I thought that Trump's response, which has been much uh, derided and lampooned, which was to write in capital letters on Twitter, see you in court, would indicate that everybody's dependent on the courts and the judiciary. And he, you know, he sort of thinks he can resolve it in court as much as anyone else. You know, it's obviously going to the Supreme Court now. I think that the, uh, the problem with, uh, one of the problems that appears to have happened in relation to the executive orders is, is that this one is a technical reason why it's been thrown back. The way he issued it, the fact that nobody understood it, it's been unconstitutional, uh, allegedly, uh, according to the, the, the courts so far, in the way that it was executed. And, and that's a kind of argument that can happen, and it's important for the American Constitution that it's all sorted out. But I think, again, we end up missing the politics of this. And what is it about the politics that is right or wrong in relation to the Muslim ban beyond everybody calling him an Islamophobe and comparing him to Hitler? And I think that kind of more serious and deep discussion about terrorism, uh, uh, the threat of terrorism, security versus freedom, has ended up being sidelined by far too much posturing and name-calling And it might well be that the ACLU has now raised millions and millions and millions of dollars on the back of being the legal representatives of freedom. But it seems to me that the argument that needs to be had about freedom versus security should be had with the American people, not in the courts. Um, Talking of illiberalism and name-calling, one of the other events of the last two weeks, as mentioned earlier, was this uh, the protests come riot at... uh, Barclay in California over um, Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, Milo is a gobby liberal troll, but this seems to be it seems such a shame, particularly as it's Barclay, because it's um, you know that the home of the free speech movement in the late sixties uh, has now basically stopped somebody from having some free speech. So, uh, what, what, what do people think about that? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, extraordinary to watch the, the videos and the television scenes of, of um, the fires around the, the university. 
uh, as people tried to stop to stop him coming in. I mean, one of the things that caught my eye actually was uh, uh, in one of the videos of, of all the people protesting uh, the, 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 the sign that, that uh, the placard that was held up of uh, hate free zone. You know, here, here we are uh, with all these protesters trying to, to stop him come in, uh, yet somehow trying to uh, assert themselves as, as a hate free zone. And I think, um, you know, it was, uh, and, and also graffiti in, in just behind the, with kill Trump. You know, you couldn't, you, you can't make up the irony in, in, in these sorts of things. I thought, I thought it was um, really interesting that, uh, that what, three, four, five hundred people perhaps were uh, uh, prevented from hearing Milo. Uh, the next day he's on Fox News to, uh, with a 15-minute interview to millions and millions of people. So just on a basic level, that attempt to silence people um, um, just doesn't work. And, and also, uh, quite problematically, I think, it leaves him as the one, uh, you know, setting himself out as the defender of free speech. He's saying the left uh, are, are, are the problem in that they're trying to suppress free speech. And he's, you know, he, he's, he's, he's the one that um, is on the side of freedom. So it's all very problematic. One, one of the things that caught my eye was, um, and obviously uh, Berkeley's tremendously important university because it's got a history of all of these uh, uh, movements that have advocated and fought for free speech over the years, particularly in the 1960s. And there was a, a letter um, from some of the, the people in the 1960s that was written to one of the Californian papers who were very strongly advocating that even despite their complete disagreement with Milo's views, that he should be allowed to speak and he should be, you know, he should be given a platform uh, where people could then come along and disagree with him and have the debate out, which I thought was quite impressive. And um, the, the, the other side of that, and I think the thing that we should remember sometimes in, in the discussion about the universities is it wasn't just the students who were protesting against him, but there was a hundred of the lecturers from the university that had uh, written saying that, that Milo shouldn't be given a platform. So it's, it's a kind of irony that, uh, or not irony, it's just a, a fact that, that um, it's not just the students that are, 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 are preventing people having freedom of speech, but it's actually the adults, the grown-ups, the lecturers, the people that you, you would have hoped would have known better. Um, I, I, a few things to add to that rather than to repeat it. In, in uh, 1964, I think, when the kind of original big um, free speech uh, events happened in, in, in Berkeley, it was against the in loco parentis rules, uh, which were um, part of university life at the time, that the universities acted as uh, parents for the, the, the kind of young people who were going to university, which for women, by the way, meant that you were kind of chaperoned everywhere and looked after um, it also meant that there was a ban on political parties or any kind of political engagement on university campuses for staff or students. There was a ban on outside speakers. They were all vetted and so on because the universities acted to protect young people. And think of this irony, you know, what happened was, was that somebody got arrested outside Berkeley um, for setting up a civil rights uh, uh, um, uh, stall and students surrounded the police car and kind of, uh, you know, it sparked the flame of, of free speech on campus, the notion of uh, the freedom to invite who you wanted in to speak and to be political. And it led to the overturning of the in loco parentis rules 
um, at university campuses throughout America and then you know, much more uh, widely through the 60s, the liberation movements. These were liberation movements, right? Today's liberation fighters are trying to, first of all, uh, ban speakers and say that they've got the wrong politics, they shouldn't be allowed in, and also to reintroduce in loco parentis rules uh, where you have safe spaces and everything's protected and calling on the authorities to protect them from hate speech. So you couldn't, um, you know, you couldn't have seen a more regressive state um, uh, sort of politics. So another amusing thing, just in terms of UK audiences, amusing but tragic at the same time, was that Laurie Penny was at the event um, over in America. She was reporting it. Laurie Penny, the I'm sure our listeners know, is a, a left-wing feminist writer who, you know, is no more a fan of the Institute of Ideas than probably um, uh, we are of, of some of her victim feminism stuff. But Laurie Penny was there. And she decided she'd go to the debate because she wanted to hear Milo uh, speak. And she was um, a great critic of Milo and so on and so forth. But she couldn't get in the debate because of the protest. She got herded in with a load of uh, Milo supporters and kind of locked in a hotel for eight hours or whatever it was by the police for their own safety. So she wrote some tweets and then proceeded to write a few things saying, you know, when you talk to these kind of right, alt-right trolls and Milo supporters, you know, some of them are kids and I've had some interesting conversations. So she just wrote a few tweets like this. Well, the heavens descended on her. Laurie Penny has been the subject of what can only be described as the most illiberal, intolerant set of abuse from, as it were, her own peers that you could possibly imagine. She's been called an apologist for white supremacism. Uh, she's been told that she was enabling fascism and Nazism, that she's secretly in, in, in league with Milo, that she's as bad as him, that she's a woman of privilege, and so on and so forth. Um, you kind of couldn't make it up. But it does indicate the kind of toxic uh, um, a policing of thoughts and people, that even somebody who actually represents in many ways some of the, the threats to free speech in my mind in terms of her kind of, uh, uh, she would be a supporter of safe spaces and so on, can be turned on in such a, a way, was instructive as to why we need free speech and why we should let Milo speak, let Laurie Penny speak and, and see who wins the argument. And I think uh, the, the sort of logical end point of some of what's been going on was actually illustrated in the other uh, university protest that went, that's gone on in the last week, which was up at New York University, uh, where videos emerged of um, students protesting against a guy called Gavin McInnes, who's the ex-Fox News guy. And, um, I mean, you can find this video on the internet, and it's, it's a, a, an incredible video to watch, really, uh, the amount of uh, abuse that's been hurled in all directions, but in particular... Uh, what I think is, I, I don't know if it's been completely confirmed yet, but one university professor who um, screeches away for uh, two or three minutes um, against the uh, New York police, uh, who she's accusing of not uh, coming in hard enough and shutting down Gavin McInnes from speaking. And you can really see where all of this leads, because instead of the left being a force for defending free speech, it's now arrived at the, uh, at the point where actually they're calling on the police to go in harder and silence the people that they don't like, the thoughts of, or the speaker who, who's actually just speaking. Quick, just quickly on that as well, the, the slogan was, down with white supremacism, down with white supremacism, over and over, shouted very loudly. 
um, which is obviously, um, it's not rampant in New York, by the way, white supremacism, but this is the uh, concept creep that now anyone... But what then happened, and, and some people reported, was people who were le- lecturers who were white, who were leaving the building, as in their normal life, just leaving the building, were shouted at as white supremacists if they didn't join the demonstration. So it's like, come and join us, they say, no, I'm going home to do me marking. It was like, white supremacists, white supremacists. And you do think... The re-racial, this is often by white liberal lecturers as well as Black Lives Matter supporters and so on, but the kind of racialising of American politics that we can increasingly see, by the way, creeping into campus disputes in the UK, I think is particularly regressive, as well as the fact that they were, as you were pointing out, calling on the police to police who went in and out and spoke at a university. So we, we do clearly have a problem when it comes to the issue of freedom, and the Institute has... A new initiative uh, in relation to that, which, uh, Alistair, could you explain a bit more about the residential school? Yeah, so uh, this is the latest initiative from the Institute of Ideas, which is called Living Freedom. It's a three-day residential school in London taking place uh, on the 6th to the 8th of April. And it's aimed at uh, 18 to 25-year-olds who are uh, interested in issues related to freedom and uh, are keen to have a, a, a space where they can explore these issues in a bit more depth than some of the other uh, forums that we provide, such as Battle of Ideas. So we're inviting applications from uh, people who, who would like to, to come along. Um, across the course of the three days, uh, people will not only be able to explore, explore some of the contemporary debates that are going on just now, uh, so for example, uh, the looking at free will versus determinism or how civil liberties are being undermined, but they'll actually be able to look in a bit more depth at how these ideas have emerged and how they relate to historical ideas on freedom as well. So we'll have lectures uh, going all the way back to classical conceptions of freedom. We'll look at freedom of conscience. Uh, We'll look at the relationship between freedom and democracy and look at certain uh, thinkers over the course of history as well. So we'll have short provocative lectures on some of the key themes and works uh, over, over the ages and not only uh, a chance to, to kind of look at contemporary issues and, and the historical stuff, but actually to, for people to get involved in trying to think through how we could recreate or create a new tradition of freedom, as it were. So there'll be workshops and writing challenges and film clubs and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a real opportunity for anybody uh, to come along, consider the issues in a bit more depth. Two quick questions. London isn't cheap in general, so how much does it cost? And secondly, is this just directed at students? Um, It's directed at anybody between the ages of 18 and 25, whether they're students or in employment or or, or whatever. Um, People need to apply, um, so if they go to the Institute of Ideas website, uh, www.instituteofideas.com forward slash living freedom uh, they'll find the web page uh, on the school and you'll be able to find an application form uh, there it's just a short submission write 300 words uh, just to give us a means to to assess uh, those that are applying and uh, we're, we're very much subsidizing the the school it's going to be a nominal fee of 30 pounds to attend uh, the, the the school uh, and that will cover accommodation for two nights in central london as well Although, just to point out that the accommodation uh, has within it 
<laughs> a, a kind of a living freedom uh, theme, <laughs> uh, because it's staying in a hostel that used to be a prison, um, but at least it's free. Um, but it might give you a, a clue as to why you want to be free and not end up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and on the cheery notes, um, thank you to Claire and Alistair. If you've enjoyed this uh, podcast and you'd like to hear more of them or subscribe to them, then please visit instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. And thank you for listening.